Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. We need now to work double hard to overturn. On the inflation rate and the unemployment rate. It's called the Phillips Curve. The government is too big. It's too intrusive. It restricts what we can How do. How does he look within giving the grim data of the day? This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. Well, for a while, there was a lot of talk about modern monetary theory. During the pandemic, it was openly accepted, you might say, as the way that the governments could actually spend what was needed to cover the cost of dealing with COVID. But it's also now being blamed for inflation. They went too far, some people say, perhaps also for a lot of misspending. That happened because it was easy to spend. So isn't that one of the problems with MMT? There is no discipline in a profession where everyone is taught to think of spending as happening at the opportunity cost of doing something else. We look at that this week on the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Key. Welcome along. So modern monetary theory tells us that governments can create money if they need to, that when they spend what's effectively new money that's pushed into the economy, that goes through to, to the private sector. People spend that money. That helps the economy grow because the, the, the private sector now has this money to spend and they can invest and, and build from. But, Steve, I mean, that sounds like that should be the answer to our, to our current problems, doesn't it? If we look in the UK, for example, we want to pay the nurses more or any public sector workers, you know, all those who are currently on strike, just increase government spending go further into, you know, what many people would call, call government debt, uh, you know, whether that's the right terminology or not. But you just create the money, give it to the people who need it, uh, problem solved. But, you know, the, the core of economics, you know, as we're taught, is this idea of opportunity cost, that, you know, that uh, any money you spend, you're spending at the expense of not doing something else. If you can just create money, governments can just create money, what happens to this idea of, of opportunity cost? Where is where is, where are the controls? Well, opportunity cost, I would take out to the to the uh, the back of the the, uh, the boat shed and drown because it's a crazy <laughs> concept that makes no sense whatsoever in a macro economy. And the trouble is, this this sort of thinking is why economics has got itself in, in the bind it's been in for the last one it's and a, a half very, centuries. It's a very fundamental concept. It's a fundamental economics. concept which applies to individuals and does not apply to the collective unless you're absolutely at full employment, going absolutely gangbusters. Now, if you look at, um, uh, like, individuals, you've got 24 hours of the day. If you sleep for eight, you've only got 16 left. Whatever you do comes at a cost of what's what's left in the remainder. And that's why this idea of opportunity cost, I think, uh, seduces the minds of economists because when I ask my, my mainstream economist friends, and I have a few, 
you um, what they think is the most important thing they teach their students. They'll also opportunity cost. And I think it just shows how brainwashed you lot are because when you're looking at the aggregate level, and that's what economics fundamentally has to be about, uh, you only have the possibility of, of opportunity cost applying if you've got every resource fully employed. And therefore, to shift a resource from one location to another means the one it goes from has to have a fallen output. No. So you have to say, you know, you, you have to be considering the opportunity cost when you what the economists call the production possibility frontier. So to get technical about this, the way that they, and I'm always going to say they, of course, uh, the way that they will de- demonstrate this to their students. So they, they will draw for their students, they will draw a diagram with uh, like you know, one industry on the vertical axis, say manufacturing, another on the horizontal, say services. And they'll then draw a curve that links the two that's a bit like a circle. And the idea is that each... It, additional amount you take from manufacturing uh, will enable you to have more services, but you necessarily have to have a fall in manufacturing no, output as because well. Because of scarcity of resources. Because of, well, because you fully resources are fully employed. No. If you want to produce more services and less, then you have to produce less manufacturing. Mm. So, you, so your opportunity cost of more services is less manufacturing. Right. Now, that is only... Well, what's the constraint there? What's the scarcity? The is, it is energy or people? No, or everything. Money? Everything is supposed to be fully employed. Right. Now, the real world, that is nothing like what the real world has ever been or will ever be right. uh, because the idea is all firms are working at absolute maximum capacity, all workers have a job, et cetera, et cetera. So to have opportunity costs becoming a realistic constraint upon the economy at the macroeconomic level, you have to be fully employed, not just workers, but also your uh, industrial capacity has to be fully employed. So you're saying the theory is sound. If you, no, if you, no, I'm saying you, the theory is were, nonsense. But if you were at that full capacity... Well, you never know. I'm saying it, it, it's a bit... Like, uh, if I'll, you had I'll, full employment, for example, if everybody in the country had a job... Then you've got the question, haven't you, about what uh, you know? Yeah, what, well, what do they do? Well, so what, that, that becomes then a question. When you? when you have, you will never get full employment of machinery. Okay, that's mm. that's that's just because you can't produce anything. You've got to have both machinery and workers and energy and raw materials to produce any output. But if you do it in the stylized way that economists do, um, then you could imagine having a full employment of labor and therefore to get more workers in one industry sector, you have to take them from another industry sector. So you do have an opportunity cost at that level, even if you have spare resources, which you will have in every manufacturing firm because for competitive reasons firms have to produce below full capacity because at their full capacity they can't expand into what they see as an expanding market so uh, you, you you will the, the whole point about modern monetary theory can be re interpreted to say, well, all your theories about opportunity cost only apply if we're at the production possibility frontier, as you describe that curve linking mm. different industries. We're not there. We're trying to get there. Right. And yet, uh, how close to it are we? Because if we look at, you know, what happened in, in the United States, thanks to, you know, and around the world, but the US is more profound than anywhere, yeah. thanks to the, the great resignation. Uh, we've got 10.5 million job openings in the United States. Go back 10 years, it was less than 4 million. Mm. We've got uh, 5.7 million people unemployed. So basically, 
two available jobs per person in the United States. The unemployment rate is three and a half percent. Go back to the just after the two thousand and eight financial crisis, it was around ten percent. Yeah. So I mean, it, it, I mean, and, something and, something's happening there, and that would suggest that they are pretty close to full employment. Well, and that is a sign of a successful modern monetary theory right. revival of the economy. Because if you take a look at all the, that COVID money, all that COVID money, it's mm. enormous amount. I mean, I've forgotten the scale of the deficit that America ran, but it was of the order of twenty percent of GDP. Right. Now, that's much larger than you'd want to have on a sustained basis in an MMT-informed world. It's a huge increase in the money supply in one single year. But the result of that was an incredibly, the shortest recession in economic history. And I recommend people take a look at the, uh, the, the database that the St. Louis Federal Reserve maintains called the FRED database. And you'll see that on every chart you know, they produce by default, you get gray bars indicating recessions. And of course, the width of the bar is how long the recession Recession lasted. The shortest recession in the history of America was the COVID recession mm. because so much money was pumped in by I the spent government. Spent the way out of it. Spent yeah, the way yeah. out of it. And instantly full employment. So, it's a, yeah, it's a, so it's, it showed that yeah. Yeah, it works. Yeah. Okay? And the thing is, what you'd like to have is people saying, oh, that worked. Be like Kevin Rudd with the, uh, <coughs> the, the cash injections into people's bank accounts during the yeah. uh, 2008 the financial In Australia didn't have a recession. Mm. Uh, the only two countries did in Australia and South Korea. So the government spending route that MMT says will get you towards that mythical production possibility frontier works. Right. But they get back, it gets back to that fundamental question, though. So, you know, where's how do you make decisions then if, if, if there's because rightly or wrongly, I mean, you know, the economics profession is built on this idea of scarcity, that, which means that there has to be a considered decision about what you do with money. And if, if you lose that consideration because, you know, is it A or B? Well, no, do both. What if, what if you know if 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 they're not the most effective way of spending that money? You know if you're not if you're not well, forced the, the, if you it, haven't got the control. Is, is scarcity the correct framework for analysing capitalism? Mm. And I think the answer again. That's the is, question I was going to ask. Huh? Thanks. That's the question I was going to ask. Thanks for repitching it that way. <laughs> the answer is no. Uh, mm. Capitalism has not been defined by scarcity. It's been defined by distributional scarcity, mm. definitely. Okay, but by incredible. What do you mean by that? Huh? Explain that a bit more. Look, the the rich get everything, and the yeah. poor get close. Not close to nothing, but far less than the theory says they'll get. Okay, workers aren't being paid their marginal product, or that sort of nonsense. So you have. Uh, you know, enormous wealth for a small number, a reasonable standard of living and huge growth in that standard of living over the last 150 years, largely because of you exploiting fossil fuels. And we're now, it's the, the people who are getting a lousy deal out of this are the energy slaves uh, that we pay a pittance for, and they do most of the work. And we live in an energy-rich society without being aware of it. But but uh, fundamentally, it isn't scarcity, it's, it's excess that defines capitalism. And what we should really be saying is, is this an excess one we can sustain? So I, I would actually turn that all around completely and, and say that with, with if you had a modern monetary theory understanding of how the government creates money and how that provides money for the private sector, then the question is, doing how do you do that wisely? Given the constraints in which we actually live, well, that is the question. How, do, which is the question I'm asking. Which, yeah. You know, with the the whole idea of opportunity cost is really it's a question about how do you make a sensible decision and how do you do that if you don't have that that constraint well, of. I, I don't think that constraint makes sense in the first place mm. because, like, it isn't an absence of monetary resources that constrains what can be done in a capitalist economy where the government creates a large part of the money supply can create that part of the money supply. It's really 
what are your physical objectives? Do you have the physical resources that you need? Are you using too many resources? Mm. Rather than, like opportunity cost implies, you're using everything to capacity. We are probably one and a half, two, three times the scale we should be using. We've gone well past the bounds, uh, not of what the factories can produce, but what the biosphere enables us to do in a sustainable fashion right, and we're doing in the that future. With, right, and we have done that with this idea of scarcity hanging over our heads. So but, if you but, imagine but, how much but, worse that would be if we got rid of no, that. No, I think it would be a damn sight better because the scarcity is about the scarcity of money. But at the same time, the attitude is being we can do what we like to the biosphere. Mm. I mean, this is the, the Nordhaus garbage, you know, go for growth type stuff. Um, the, the whole idea we can continue growing indefinitely on a finite planet. That is what's led us into the trap we're in now. And this, this, so the focus, the belief there's a scarcity of money has led to a an attitude of, of physical excess. Uh, which at the same time is shown as if we're living inside a, you know, using our resources to their capacity, when in terms of factories, we're not using anything like their full capacity because they don't work the way the textbooks say they do. They always have spare capacity. Uh, but in the in the physical world, we're well and truly going beyond what we can what we can take out of that physical world with our factories and still have a sustainable biosphere. But who's responsible for the t- decision-making process then? So in a, uh, in a laissez-faire economy, um, which we're going to talk about next week as to, you know, to the extent to which one exists, um, th- then the, you know, the, it's whatever can make the most money. If we don't have that as the overriding factor, then how are decisions made? That is an extremely good question. And I think it's the, the, the way we should be thinking about 2023 and, and further on. But it's sort of the question I started with, really. It's, yeah, but, you know, but, it's, but getting away from opportunity cost, cost it, it's a question of how do we make sensible decisions for a civilization on a physically limited biosphere? Mm. That's what we should be doing. Right. <clears throat> and it, it probably means it's because the money is created by the government. The decisions are made by government. But God help us, Steve. If we if we go towards almost like a centrally planned economy driven by the caliber of politicians that we seem to come up with, we've got the I wrong. Mean, yeah, we, we, I mean we're armed with, with, with the wrong people or the wrong ideas. That, I'd rather have Elon Musk making all the decisions. I don't like him very much. My God, that's that's a statement. I, I, yeah, from <laughs> here, yeah. So uh, yeah, I mean, what, what is the answer to it? Well, I, th- I think we're going to stumble through. Mm. And the question of how how successfully do we stumble through is the real question. We may stumble through in such a way that societies collapse in the process and a new power structure comes out of it. That's probably the biggest fear that I've got for the next decade, that we are going to stumble and, and fall over. And all this focus upon the idea that we can actually work out, you know, if we do this, this is the opportunity cost of not doing this, blah, blah, blah. It won't be those easy calculations. It'll be events driven by climate change. That so, so right now, yeah. should Rishi Sunak... Um, resign? No, no, no. That's. I mean, obviously, but no. Should he say, okay, nurses strike, rail strike, oh. uh, emergency workers strike? Uh, let's just pay them. Should he, he should. Just, he right. should. Okay, because and then they come back and say, well, okay, let's try that again. That works so well, and everyone else starts saying the same thing. Where do you? I mean, where do you? Well, no, you've got to look at. I mean, how badly their wages have been suppressed in the last thirty or forty years. Mm. Salaries in. I mean, I was. I was, um, remember talking to a, 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 a female friend about uh, my pay rate versus the doctor and then finding in my surprise that doctors got paid less than professors here. So the, the, mm. the, the standard inside the NHS, the pay rates for doctors, was, which is talking about her brother, incredibly low. No. So you, you've had people who have been exploited uh, by the fact that they have 
a social conscience and they want to do good stuff for people. They're, they're doctors and nurses because they want to care for other people. And as a result of that, they don't have the capacity well, to strike. So, okay, so there's an interesting uh, yeah. line to pursue on all of this then. So I was reading about the situation in Sweden, and if you're listening in Sweden, I, I might have read this wrong, but it seems to me that everyone points to Scandinavian countries as a place where you pay high taxes, but you get great services. Yeah. But in their health service, it's a bit like in Australia, you do pay some sort of gap fee to yeah. go and see the doctor. Now, you see, I actually think, or oh, there's, oh, there's a point, you pay up to a certain level. So if you've got a chronic condition, you're not paying uh, yeah. you know, continually. But if you just go and see the doctor a few times a year, then you pay for that, pay for that visit. Hmm. Now, to me, that's a discipline that is worth pursuing because it means you are not over-abusing the system. So a bit of money paid for yeah. rather than just the free availability of money. So we've got to have checks and balances in. Yeah, in, and what you're talking about is more checks and balances than opportunity cost. Yeah. Uh, but but it's a question of what what is the overall objective we should have on the planet? And to me, the idea that we make that over, overarching objective making money is why we're in the catastrophic future we face uh, because we've ignored the sustainability of that level of profitability on the biosphere. Mm. And we're now going to start seeing it. This, you know, this this decade is the beginning of seeing it in a serious scale. And we possibly have the breakdown of the physical system to which we rely to be able to have a, 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 a booming economy. So uh, we should be saying, what what is, the, what is humanity's true role? And you come back to your Elon Musk comment earlier on, which which and the, the, we're doing a bit of an inversion here early on. Well, he's telling me he's clearly turning into a complete huh? nut job now, isn't he? <laughs> the stuff over Twitter is a bit of a worry, definitely. Um, but the um, his attitude is our role should be to sustain and promote life. And that should be the role we see as, as, as ourselves as a species on this planet. We are the only species that knows, unless the dolphins have done the calculations themselves, that we've got about 300 million years before the sun wipes out the capacity for life on this planet. Mm. Okay, but, but I think I think roughly, it's certainly of the 100 million year level. If we don't do something to get life off planet, life will be eliminated by the growth in the scale of the sun. So that's something we know that other animals don't know. And except perhaps the dolphins. And huh? the, the, except, except for the dolphins. And the reason yeah. you refer to that is because, of course, of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the, the Galaxy, galaxy yeah. where the dolphins do disappear so off the planet. So long and thanks because, for all the fish. Exactly, because they know what's coming so long and thanks for all the fish. Yeah, there we are. So that, that is the, that, that's that which what we should be our first and foremost objective. And the question is, does capitalism give you the capacity to make those decisions properly? And the answer is no bloody way. Right. You have to have a constrained version of a private enterprise economy to enable you to make those decisions. And you need people who can understand those issues, and we don't have either. Right. Well, we are going to take that bigger question next week because that's exactly what we're going to look at next week on the podcast is, uh, you know, is it, you know the future for capitalism. I want to focus more, a bit more on, mm. on MMT and, and opportunity costs, which we've already said has got no play, part to play in it. When we come back after the break, have a have a think about this. You know, when when governments spend money, I want to look at the the inflation side of it because that's obviously yeah. a consequence of MMT. Yeah. And you know, how much government money is spent on just maintaining operational costs versus investment. So when we pay the wages of mm. of, uh, of public uh, private sector workers, public sector workers, I should say, yeah. that's an operational cost. It's not helping the economy grow necessarily. So I want to look at that when we come back. It's the debunking economics podcast with me and Steve Keen. Back in just a second. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. So, yeah, so we, we talked, Steve, about how, you know, yes, we should just give money to, to, to the nurses and doctors and all those public sector workers who've uh, not been able to maintain their standard of living. That sort of makes sense. But if the government keeps on doing that with money that they create, that is an operational cost. And I thought the whole idea behind modern monetary theory was that if you do too much of that, that could be inflationary and that you're pumping money into the economy and okay, sure, those people are spending that money, so it's helping. Uh, you know, there's a multiplier impact of that money, particularly if it's going to lower income earners who are going to spend it quicker. But it's not an investment, is it? It's not an investment that's going to help the economy grow. And surely, the idea behind modern monetary theory is not paying existing workers more. The ultimate objective is full employment, isn't it? It's creating more jobs. For part, partly, modern monetary theory is just saying, for God's sake, understand the system you're running. Because hmm. the, the frustration that I feel is is that I know when I do the accounting in Minsky. I prove the essential points of modern monetary theory and the credit theory of money that I've also developed. Uh, and, and they're 100% correct about the nature of money creation. And therefore, there are, if you're going to be guiding how to run a system, you should have a model of the system that's actually accurate about how the system works. So the, the first thing in modern monetary theory is to just understand what you're doing. Then the question is, how do you use that understanding? What does that lead to? Now, for a start, we, we spoke in a, pre a previous podcast about how neoliberalism promised there'd be such an increase in the rate of growth and rate of growth of private incomes that you wouldn't need the public se sector anymore. Well, the reality has been that 40 years of that have left the, the bottom, certainly in the UK, 40 to 70 percent of the population uh, running out of money on a day-by-day -day basis, unable to meet the costs they face in the private sector unable to get the services they need from the public sector at the same time. And that's why there's such a degree of angst in the UK these days. Uh, so you, you want to reverse that mistake. You want to give those people the salaries they should have got that neoliberalism actually destroyed. So you do want to increase the pay rates of the lower uh, level workers in the economy as well. And that then, because those people do spend what they earn, they simply have to. Then you get an economic stimulus for that, which can mean the private sector in general finds more reason to invest. Mm. So it does have that positive. So in fact, you know, way. like the levelling up agenda that the, the government has, has talked about but never effectively delivered, actually pushing up minimum wages around the country so that spending increases around the country would be one obvious step towards that, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. No, there'd be, you know, it, it, I mean, the, the, 
I don't think people in in the UK are conscious of the the level of effective poverty mm. that they live in these days, both in, in the infrastructure itself compared to the, what you find in Europe, uh, the salaries compared to what you find in in the in in America. Uh, it, it's the, the poor here are really poor, mm. and the UK still has a vision of itself as being, you know, back in the days of Churchill and Queen Victoria. I'm sorry, that is well, we're very a very centralised, very centralised economy here, aren't we? All so, in London and all, all London services, yeah, London versus the rest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and it hasn't worked. Mm. Okay, uh, so if you're going to reverse that, then you, of course you need to start rebuilding your manufacturing sector. You need to be paying people. Decent wages, so that the the minimum the wage the minimum wage is a is a reasonable living standard for the poor, and you've got to reduce the level of wealth that is taken by the parasites that um, my great mate Karl Marx once described as the roving cavaliers of credit. So when I was scribbling some notes down ahead of this podcast, I thought, well, okay, the the idea the conventional thought on opportunity cost is. Mm-hmm. If I spend this much money on one thing, will it give me a better return than spending the same amount of money on something else? Yeah. And for MMTs, it's maybe if I spend money on one thing, will it create more jobs than spending money in another way? Because the objective is 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 you know mm. maximum jobs. But in fact, it should really be if I spend this much money on one thing, will it create better income for lower income earners, or will it mm. bridge the, that gap? That's really the objective. It should be a redistribution yeah. exercise. So the opportunity cost, if we were to use that phrase, for a government should be, how can we spend this money in a way which is going to, on in general, improve everybody's lives? Yeah, yeah. And and that becomes a, a positive orientation of the government spending. Mm. Uh, and, of course, it's going Some to be... Of the, the government, of course, and MPs listening to this would say, well, that's what we are all about. <laughs> yeah. and, but they might even believe it. You normally believe your own bullshit. <laughs> so uh, I'm not most of the politicians too. Uh, but that should be the objective, shouldn't it? It should be all. It should be all about because th- this idea of um, uh, creating jobs is what MMT is. The ultimate aim is that everyone is gainfully employed, isn't it? That's the ultimate objective. The ultimate objective is that, that workers don't pay for the ups and downs of capitalism. Mm. Okay, the booms and the busts should be borne by the people who invest rather than the people who don't have the money to to invest. Right. So when you see the, I mean, certainly capitalism booms and busts do hit the capitalists as well as workers. No, no two ways about that. Um, but what, who wouldn't have central banks saying, okay, we need to tank the economy to try and get things under in 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 control? Sorry about that. That means a whole lot of people are going to lose their jobs. Yeah, and, and the, the idea that we happy to see that we talk about a, a job guarantee. Mm. So if you lost your job in the private sector, there'd be a public sector job for you to go to. Uh, and that means that you would uh, that you wouldn't have the same fear of losing your job, or fear of mobility, which currently exists. You know, it's uh, the thought, and, and and that is partly a, a counterproductive thing in a for a, 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 a sophisticated society. You don't want to feel I can't afford to move. Uh, because I don't know what's going to come on the other side. If you had more of a guarantee that you could change from one job into another, then you get more of a sense of freedom and more of a sense of innovation coming out of that. So we've switched the idea of uh, you know the, the the conventional approach of opportunity cost, which is one of money. You know, we we uh, to to a focus on jobs. That's in effect what we've what we've what we're doing with MMT then, isn't it? Yeah, I mean that's that's. But it's like, uh, but there's, there's there's what I call the, the technical part of MMT, which is how is money created. Mm. 
And does the government borrow? And the answer is the government doesn't borrow. The government creates an income-earning asset for the banking sector uh, as a recompense fundamentally for uh, using the banking sector as a way to distribute government-created money to the private sector. Um, that's what bonds are. Yeah. Um, so the whole idea the government has to borrow is wrong. And once you realise that, then the constraints on government spending aren't constraints uh, the, the, what was the, the whole of being in debt? Over the biggest scale, the hugest level of government debt the UK ever had was during the Napoleonic Wars, which it won, and, and which led to the growth of the British Empire. So, when you look at the empirical data, the level of government debt is not a constraint at all. Uh, if the, on, on the basis of this, it'd be the most impoverished and weakest Britain. It was when Britain Britain had its biggest empire. So, the, there are errors of thinking. And MMT really getting rid of those errors. The other part of MMT, the policy part, is to say that once we understand how government money creation occurs, then there's no uh, need for people to be unemployed as a control buffer on the booms and busts of capitalism. You could give them a job in the with a job guarantee where they continue earning income, they continue doing work, and they're therefore, when the economy in the private sector starts to boom again, they can move back into the private sector and not be de-skilled by a period of unemployment. Right. Well, yeah. So it's the decision-making process and all of that, you know, not the technical aspects of it because we've spoken about that yeah. a great deal. Because I just see this as the weakness in the whole MMT is how that decision-making process works, the, the substitute for this idea mm. of opportunity cost. So in, in that example you gave... Okay, you go from you lose your job because there's an economic downturn. You have a you have a a, a guaranteed job. You say so. You're not de-skilled, so you can go back into the into the uh, into the private sector when mm. the economy starts to pick up again. But I mean, if that's just a job created for the purpose of creating a job, you almost certainly will be de-skilled. You'll be demotivated as well as de-skilled because it's a job in effect a job creation scheme, which is which is there just to keep you employed. It's not necessarily satisfying or useful. That waste of, could be wasted. I mean, I'm 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 more of a fan of universal basic income. Mm. I know that's uh, you know it's it's sort of the get free up, money, get up the garlic <laughs> clothes from a lot of MMT people. <laughs> uh, but my my position is that uh, it comes out of my ecological thinking as well as out of uh, uh, well mainly out of the ecological thinking. Just to just bring it down to that, we got we we don't want everybody working for a while. We want to reduce output levels drastically. We don't want people starving because they don't have work to do. And I'm more of a fan of a UBI on that front. Right. Uh, but that, isn't that what we're going through right now? Isn't that why we've got rampant inflation? Because there's not enough people out there producing stuff, but there's people who've got money to spend. Well, no, I mean, that's, wouldn't, that's, wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't a UBI, if it was a meaningful amount, wouldn't that create that problem that where there be lots of people being given money, got money to spend, but there's not enough people producing it <coughs> directly for them to go shopping with. Well, no, when you, when if you look at a, the, what wage would be paid as a, as, a, as a job guarantee wage, it would be less than you'd get in the private sector. Mm. So it's going to encourage you to want to, if the market expands again, to go back into the private sector. It's mainly the, the feeling you'd, you're not in jeopardy uh, of, of uh, if you leave your private sector job or you lose your private sector job. I remember, back because I, I was raised in probably the, one of the few periods in human history where full employment really applied, which is Australia in the 1960s and 70s. And unemployment was one to one and a half percent. Now, there was low rates of inflation as well, booming economy in a large public sector. It all worked extremely well until 1973 when it all fell apart. Mm. But I know that... We didn't uh, have independent central banks either. Yeah. yeah, That that would have helped. (laughs) 
Uh, but the, but that that period meant that you you felt you could leave a job and go to something else, mm. and therefore you had had a a feeling of independence and power that people certainly don't have today, and that the fear. I think that's an incredibly uncreative element of the world which we've created. We've, we've yeah, yeah. So if we had a meaningful safety net, then you'd get that mobility. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So I'm not sure how that relates to back to that idea though about how governments are making their decisions. You know, it's the because that that's my just my big question mark out of all of this, and that's why you know at, at, to what extent are we substituting opportunity cost by governments making decisions without any form of form of discipline? The only discipline they've got is that, as you say, if they understand what they're doing. Then they're going to. Re- they'll know that there's going to be a point where if they pump too much money into the economy. Then they're going to. Then they're going to create inflation, which is sort of arguable. And also, they know that they don't have to borrow when they're creating that money. So they yeah. don't need to worry about the government debt. But then you still want to make. How do you make sensible decisions? Yeah. And that then comes down to having a systemic view of the world in which we live. And would it be that different to where we are now in in reality in the in the amount of spending? So government spending to GDP in the UK, according to the Office of Budget Responsibility has only twice gone over 50% in the in the UK, one just after the war yeah. and then one just after what we've been through with the yeah. pandemic. Before, it's always been around something, you know, a little bit above 40%, a little bit below 40%. You know, it was a bit less during the Thatcher years and more, a bit more towards the end of the last Labour government. Then it's fallen sharply <laughs> during the austerity years. So there's, yeah. a, there's a lesson in, in all of that. But it's that sort of range. We're not talking about deviating from that sort of range with... MMT presumably would still no. see. I mean, the thing, the thing about MMT, and this is actually a point that came through the discussions I had in Australia back when I was running for office there unsuccessfully, uh, and that is that if why do you have high service uh, providing societies like the Nordic countries also being high tax? And it comes down to the fact that if you are going to offer services uh, to your public, um, then you are going to have a large amount of revenue needed for that. And the gap between your tax is spending and taxation, spending exceeding taxation, that's where your money creation comes in. So if you're going to have much, much more services provided by the public sector, you're going to have a higher rate of taxation, also a higher, again, rate of spending, the two. So I think the UK is probably... look If you look at the calibre of public infrastructure in the UK versus the calibre in Europe, you've got to increase it. So I can see a reason for tax rates to rise and government spending to rise, but spending to exceed taxation. Right. But tax but taxation doesn't need to increase, does it? it if, if if you want to if you don't want to have too much money creation by the government, yes it does. Right. The spending itself drags the tax level up. If you've got a target deficit, which is the amount of government money creation that's going to occur. So if you want to increase the number of government services while not creating too much government money for the reasons of putting too much inflationary pressure upon the economy, then you've got to increase your tax rate as well. And still not understanding how the government makes its decisions, because there's a danger, isn't mm. there? I mean, for example, they, do they say, well, OK, we've, we, we can create money uh, building uh, a high-speed rail link up to the North England. That's not a problem. It's, you know, it, it, if the costs blow out, not too concerned about that pay more for nurses, pay more for all public sector salaries. Uh, we'll spend more more on education so we get better educated kids. Do they just say yes to, to all of these things? What do they say no to? Well, they would say no, I think, to the excessive income distribution that you have in this society. Right. The enormous salary is going to the finance sector. 
uh, that's what you if you look at where the waste so that becomes it, not spending that becomes regulation more yeah, think, yeah. doesn't it but the, the, it's, it's failings on that front mm. rather, I mean there hasn't been investment worth speaking of in the UK for decades mm. both public and private I mean you know you have a, a, a public sector which has been trying hard not to invest in the belief they were making space for the private sector the only part of the private sector that grew in that gap was the finance sector and what you've got, consequently, you have an enormous trade deficit, importing a large part of your manufacturing and agricultural goods from the rest of the world. So it wasn't a case that that you know, focus upon scarcity and opportunity cost and so on led to better decisions. It led to decisions which weakened the capacity of the UK to produce for its own needs in particular over time. And that's a sign of how, how failed this whole policy is the UK is a much, much weaker economy and society than it was before 40 years of neoliberalism. So I don't think MMT's a worry in the direction of you won't make wise decisions because you haven't made them for the last 40 years anyway. But understanding how the system works to say you can then create that money, uh, that is at least you start with an understanding how the system functions, then you can see the consequences. But beyond that, it's it, how how are you actually making? Once you understand what you're working with mm. and this ability to create money, how do you how do you still determine what what you do? That's that's what I'm having difficulty with. So you can you could say, well, okay, mm. the objective is to make sure everyone's got a job, mm. uh, but then there's a danger in that, isn't there? Because you could say, well, okay, let's 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 invest in a whole load of uh, highly uh, labour intensive industries, which may not be that productive. So everyone's in a job, but it's a dead-end job, which could easily be replaced by machines, but we're not going to invest in the machines because we want to create the jobs. Um, no, I, I th if you, it, it's, uh, you have to have, for a growing economy, a growing money supply. Mm. And, and we've, I mean, the, the question of a growing economy, yet again, I've got to put that to the side. So yeah, it's as, to, <laughs> as to whether that is actually a good thing. Whether it's sustainable over the long term. Mm. But uh, the, what, what you've had by this obsession about uh, government debt is that the government hasn't created enough money and you, what has happened to the private sector has grown more slowly as a result of that. The innovation of the private sector has declined as well as the public sector. And the private sector, if it doesn't have government money, the only recourse for it to get more money is private money. Mm. And so you've had a huge growth in speculation, not an in investment. So I think if you got back to the stage where the government created the majority of the money circulating in the economy uh, and that therefore meant there was less need to borrow money, then you'd have less financial imposition on people sure. and more capacity for money to be used for productive purposes rather than for speculation. Now, that makes sense. Uh, I still sense, though, just as we round off today's episode, yeah. that what I see as the weakness in... MMT, and it's not it's it's not in the theory of MMT because that all makes sense. It is just the question about how you assign priorities and it's, whether, it, whether it, we're putting that. And if, I, if I, I don't had, think I don't think you're entirely convinced on this, by the way. Either. I don't think you're entirely convinced on this either, by the way. Well, no, that, that we are putting a lot of power in the hands of people who have demonstrated over the last ten or twenty years that they haven't got a clue. And this is the point. I mean, if I had to say, in my, if I had criticisms of MMT, it's about the politics of it mm. and and what the practicality sort of, of it actually. But, but, yeah, the practicality. Can well, the practicality work? is quite relatively straightforward. The government creates money very, very in a very simply by spending mm. more than it takes back in taxes. Yeah, and the uh, problem. 
the, the problem in that sentence is the, those first two words, the government. The government, the, the politics. And, uh, and do you have a, a government which is uh, beneficent, doing things for the benefit of society, or do you have a government which marks, uh, characterises the uh, ruling committee of the, of, the, of the ruling class? Yeah. And Do you uh, have a government, for example, that awards PPE contracts? To their friends. To their friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah and that's what we've got. Mm. So you have in, in, you know, incredible problems with the politics of the world in which we live. Now, MMT injecting it into that has to be aware of the cynicism and lack of, uh, of, of, of sense of many politicians. And so it has to be a political reform movement as well as an economic reform movement. And that would say things like we have to find a way of representing people, which doesn't get narcissists elected to make decisions uh, for their own friends and their, and their venal partners. Yeah, I don't know how you do that. There's actually interesting to us about it. The, if, you, if you go back to the Athenian democracy, you find that the way it was put together, the decision-making, was for using a process called sortition. And you would ask a group who then have to select people from another group who then became a part of a group that selected the next group, yada, 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 yada. Sounds like preferential uh, voting. Huh? Sounds like preferential but voting. The thing was, it was preferential selection. <laughs> yeah. And I think there was, it was done in such a way... So you get down to the last two and then it's a fight to the death. Something like that. That would be, but, that would be good. That, no, would, that would have stopped Boris. <laughs> Uh, but 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 a sortition process. I mean, you've got a representative group, because what we call representative democracy is neither representative nor, in a genuine sense, a democracy. Mm. So a sortition process might select people who can represent the vast majority of the population, and then you need people who understand systemic processes. Uh, genuine experts to make decisions about how you fight a pandemic rather than idiots like Boris Johnson. Um, so so that, that is what you need. It isn't just, you can't just reform the knowledge of how money is created. You've got to reform the power structure that controls the money as well. Yeah. So that's, so a big structural reform for democracy. In and effect. I think we'll be forced into it. Not we we won't do it consciously, but what climate change is going to force upon the needs for governments to do uh, to survive, they're going to have to learn those lessons through events. So it's a bit sad, isn't it? That we went through the pandemic because we did get a bit of that, didn't we? And that we had experts for a while. I mean, some people, you know, they were lambasted for their expertise, but we had experts in charge during the pandemic. You know, people people we were being guided through it by people actually knew about pandemics, coping with pandemics. Uh, but now we've gone back to you know health ministers who fall into that portfolio, even though they've got absolutely no knowledge of how the health industry works. Yeah, the same yeah. in every other portfolio. So we need to. Uh, so we had a taste of it, but we we, we reverted away from it. We did quickly. it very badly. Mm. Okay, and uh, and that's you know I think we'll do the same thing very badly when climate change starts to become absolutely critical. Right. So I'm going to sound like you. What hope is there for mankind, Steve? <laughs> uh, all right. Well, it's so I'm still not convinced that we've got an answer as to how MMT could could apply, but without you're saying without significant change to the whole political process, that's the answer to it all. We need the politics as well, uh, and then they're going to make the decisions, the real decisions which count, rather than the opportunity cost, which is the pure financially driven approach that we've taken at the moment, which is uh, which has had its day and shown it hasn't worked. I think that's what we're saying today. Yep. Isn't it? All right, and on that next week, uh, the broader question about is this: Are we reaching an end to capitalism? Are we reaching an end, particularly laissez-faire economics? Do we go back to what we grew up with, the, the whole idea of a mixed economy? Yeah. Uh, what was wrong with that? Uh, we'll look at that next week. Good to talk, Steve. Good. Yep. The Debunking Economics Podcast. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.